0: good morning this is the burner i am james butler it is wednesday the 25th of march we are still in lockdown i should say at the top of the show that the burner is now available in a separate itunes podcast feed so not only can you go subscribe there you can and please please should leave us a review it's really really helpful if you do that don't make me beg it's unbecoming There were major moves made yesterday by the government, including the conversion of the vast Excel Centre in East London, which usually plays host to huge conferences, including the infamous annual arms sales conference, at which I'm sure some of you have been arrested, into a 4,000 bed emergency hospital. A call also for a volunteer army, as if the state were catching up with the mutual aid group's initiative. Rishi Sunak says help is coming for the self-employed, but he hasn't actually brought forward any new measures yet, saying it's far more complex than dealing with employed people and he doesn't want to risk giving money to the wealthier end. For God's sake, just get the help out there and tax them at the other end. So far, lots of the left have concentrated on the immediate term needs of this crisis, helping Uh, getting help to people figuring out how to pressure the government and figuring out where the loopholes and government PR are and so on Uh, and I think that's right and I think that's fine and I think that's good but is it time to step back and try to think it through in big picture terms Most of the focus on the economics of the coronavirus has so far been at a domestic level. How far the Chancellor is going to intervene to actually allow people to follow the public health recommendations, how far he'll engage in stimulus spending, even what that means in terms of the old Tory economic orthodoxy. Uh, That seems pretty dead to me at this point. But we know it's a pandemic and we know therefore that the questions provoked by it also have a global dimension. So lurking behind the way people talk about economic action in the UK are questions about the global economic order as well. At the moment when those questions are raised, they're generally about economic cooperation between states and how they'd intervene, or whether there might be some kind of international financial aid, a corona fund maybe. And lurking behind those questions in turn is a more systemic one uh, about the current system of globalised capitalism itself as those plunging lines reawaken memories of the 2007 to 2008 financial crisis or even earlier ones, the 70s oil shock or even the 1929 crash. Though Britain's response to coronavirus has been an outlier in Europe over the past few weeks, it's come quite a lot closer to the continent in the last few days. And it only takes a quick glance across the Atlantic to realise, in this sense at least, nous sommes toujours européens. we are still Europeans. What's happening to this country. And you know, Tucker, no one reached out to me and said,
1: uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for... Keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren, our country wants to be back at work. That was not a, a controversial thing. I said the other day. Our country wants to go back to work and and again, the cure it's it's like this cure is is worse than the problem again, people many people, in my opinion, more people are going to die. If we allow this to continue, we have to go back to work. Our people want go back to work. Now, there's something
0: astonishing about this. Something, I guess, quite amazing that in a crisis, that big old honking death drive of American capitalism comes floating up to the surface. Real bizarro stuff. Like, sorry, your nan's got to die so Citibank can live. I said yesterday that maybe if there's a conflict between your economic system and preserving the life of the people, well, maybe it's not the idea of preserving the life of the people that's the problem. So I hope you'll forgive me if I abuse your patience with another Cicero quote, salus populi, suprema lex esto, the health of the people should be the highest law. And that line appears on state seals in the United States, but it's really a concept barely acknowledged today. Or if it is acknowledged, it's done by a kind of sleight of hand, a kind of conjuring trick. First, you stop thinking about individual people who are tiresome and have all sorts of needs and wants and start thinking of them in the aggregate. Then you suggest that people in the aggregate are best served by the economy, which is a measure of everything all the people do together, getting bigger. Therefore, it is essential that the line goes up rather than down. Sorry if grandma has to die to make it that way, but she's not the people, she's just a person. In any case, this crisis puts that kind of thinking under serious stress the health of the economy and the health of the people start to look like they're not the same thing at all. In fact, they look like, in some crucial respects, they're quite strongly opposed to each other. Now, all of this is sort of obvious, a kind of vulgar Marxist catechism, but it's rare to see it played out so strongly in public. It shouldn't be overstated either. One of the reasons this kind of thinking can be persuasive is that a stable and prosperous economy is better than one slipping into stagflation and one that simply collapses. The effects of such crises are not equally distributed, after all. And whatever David Cameron used to say in material terms, we're not all in this together. But how stable or how prosperous have things really been? One thing this crisis seems to be uncovering is how unequal and fragile the economy really is. 22% of adults in the UK have less than £100 in savings. How did this mythic prosperity prepare them for this crisis? Did it put them in a position now where they can act to save lives? When you zoom out some things become clear. This is a major crisis for the current form of capitalism we have. State action on such a vast scale in Europe really makes that clear. What comes next will be different. But there are other signs flashing as well if we learn to read them. There are unbelievably bleak and apocalyptic GDP forecasts for instance. Now they say they expect growth to return quickly afterwards because of policy responses but next quarter is where everyone puts their I hope predictions. There are other factors. Money flowing out of stocks, some to gold, but some to... where? The Fed in the United States pumps trillions into the market and slashes interest rates to zero, but are companies borrowing? Growth and profitability have been weak for so many for so long that you could think of them as zombie firms already propped up by credit, staving off bankruptcy. Just. And at the same time, with weak wage growth and the nature of this crisis in particular, who on earth is going to be buying things? So this all seems quite significant to me. I asked James Meadway, one of the regular economic brains at Navarra, if I was right to think this could really be a significant crisis. And as you'll hear, sometimes we even reach for the same references.
1: I think it's worth underlining the point that some of the comparisons made initially, that this would be a recession, or that this would be a 2008-9 Great Financial Crisis, or that this would be a second Great Depression. Uh, All of them are all in their own way wildly optimistic. There is no comparable event to this in the history of capitalism. The closest we have, in terms of economic upset and the global spread of that upset, is the Second World War. But even then, the popular wartime comparisons, popular not least with our own vain and negligent Prime Minister, desperately trying to ape Winston Churchill but ending up as Neville Chamberlain, are wide of the mark. The principal condition of a wartime economy, in conditions of total war, is to maximise output, to take every single productive resource that can be found, uh, human, material, social, psychological, and directed it towards a singular aim, that of winning the war. The ability of the Allies to do this more successfully than the Axis determined the eventual outcome of World War II. And if you're looking for some quarantine reading, Adam Tooze's The Wages of Destruction is a superlative guide to how it was done. But the condition of the pandemic economy is the exact opposite. Since almost all work involves some contact with other people at the workplace, on the way to the workplace, and since contact with people is what drives a pandemic, work itself must be halted. There are no circumstances in which capitalism, a system fundamentally geared towards generating greater and greater quantities of completed work in the form of capital, of wealth, can do this without imposing an immense economic cost. Now, forecasts at this point in time are a bit hit and miss, are a bit redundant, you might say, but for what they're worth, Goldman Sachs is suggesting a 30% decline in US gross domestic product in this quarter alone. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis has said 50% decline would be nearer the mark. For any sort of context, these are figures of the order of magnitude we saw in Eastern Europe during the transition from the planned economy at the start of the 1990s. And it's awareness of this cost that is now driving an argument about the need to return to work in the US behind the desire to march the American workforce back to its infected shops, warehouses and factories is the dim awareness that a lengthy shutdown in the US could lead to the loss of the US's preeminent position in the global economy. Now what the Republicans urging the poor, the tired and the sick back to drudgery don't appear to grasp. Is that the cost of an unrestrained epidemic are vastly higher than any shutdown. Uh, 250,000 deaths and the total collapse of the NHS was the Imperial College forecast for the UK, notoriously. But in the same paper, the same team estimated that the US would see 1.2 million dying in a few months. Uh, that would be their plausible estimate for an unrestrained pandemic, uh, herd immunity being acquired uh, in the US. The costs of dealing with that catastrophe would be far higher and more longer lasting than any shutdown. So short of a vaccine arriving miraculously quickly and pre-COVID normality being restored, we can imagine a world where suddenly everybody's vaccinated. We can all get back to something like the world as it was before the outbreak happened. This doesn't seem very likely to happen. We're told that perhaps 18 months is the length of time before a safe vaccine uh, can be released. But one plausible outcome is a clear shifting in the balance of economic power towards those countries that successfully mobilise their states and societies to take early, decisive action against the pandemic. This does not regrettably include the US or the UK or much of Europe. Um, Relatedly, the tendencies away from globalisation we've seen since 2008-09 will accelerate as supply chains shrink and international travel falls away, and the expanded presence of the state in economic life is liable to become a permanent feature. For now, we are in a place where the comparisons of economic history and the conventional laws of economics do not apply. Instead, Cicero's maxim, translated above the entrance to Walworth Clinic in South London, must halt that the health of the people is the highest law. So preserve essential supplies, including broadband, give the NHS every resource available, but shrink economic life until the immediate risk has passed.
0: So, in a sense, that's the question what and when the political th- feed through of this is, and why it is the left doesn't seem to be taking it seriously yet. One possible outcome, which will transform Tory politics here, by the way, is that the old dynamics of austerity and carping about overfunded services, leanness, and market logic will give way to something new. The state and the nation state will be back self-sufficiency and security, including over food production, might be back on the agenda as well. Now, that's all speculative for the time being, but it's surely urgent to think through what the new issues in politics might be afterwards. As for the response of the left so far, I wonder uh, I wonder if our experience of the 2008 crash is a bad model for this one, that it leaves us thinking crises can be contained, or that they can easily be turned to the advantage of the right and less easily to the left. Worse, perhaps, I suspect it can leave us thinking that crashes and crises follow one model, bank bailouts and austerity, when this one looks really rather different. A lockdown creates a crisis, for instance, because it stops both production and the circulation of money for quite different reasons that politicians in 2008 were sweating bullets at the thought of cash machines running dry. But there are other important parts to this crisis specifically. For instance, it's virally democratic in the sense that world leaders, as much as you and I, can be taken by it. Indeed, they're perhaps more susceptible. So it highlights the differences in treatment and access to care that they have. It highlights, too, who really makes society run. That being the very first principle of a Marxist's ABCs. But there are wider political and cultural implications, too, ones which are perhaps at this point hard to foresee, in which the threat of pandemic disease reshapes the kind of things people care about and that they look for in politics that need not necessarily have reactionary forms, but fear can be a potent political tool, however and it's generated. We continue
1: our relentless effort to defeat the Chinese what virus. Are doing to minimise the impact of the Chinese virus on our nation's students. Because well, it comes from it's China. Racist.
2: It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It
0: comes from China. That's why. The scale of this event has not yet fed into politics. It's really too soon for that to happen in the middle of a crisis but it's not too soon to think about how we might navigate its new, strange and turbulent waves. And one thing that's already becoming noticeable is the way in which both the centre and the right of politics have urgently shifted blame onto individuals rather than systems and the values which underlie those systems. That's a cousin, of course, of the kind of rhetoric which used to talk about maxing out the national credit card or belt tightening over welf- after welfare overspending. Uh, that is, it uses metaphors and examples that we all know from everyday life to powerful political effect. After all, everyone knows someone who's greedy or ungenerous, someone who hoards or panics, so we get the figure of the stockpiler, the panic pyre, and the bog roll hoarder. Just as with government rhetoric around the failure of social distancing, it somehow manages to be the general public's fault, and certainly nothing to do with the stores or how they're run or the way we live. How disappointing we are to our government. But I was suspicious about that. I don't deny, of course, that there are real, uh, there are a few real stockpilers out there. Even fights and abuses, panic people confronted bare shelves, and that in turn taken out on shop staff. But why would a moderate surge in demand, basically a weekly shop, have such extraordinary consequences? Which is why I was delighted to read a piece by Craig Gent, published on Navarra Media, which lays out really, really clearly why the stockpiler is such a canard, and points to the roots of this phenomenon in the way that supermarkets now seek to maximise profits through just-in-time logistics with very little backstock. It's an excellent piece and well worth reading, and I asked Craig to tell me a little about why he wrote it. I think I was getting a bit irritated by, um, you know, higher-ups appearing on television
2: telling the public that we should all be ashamed of ourselves and that we've become a nation of stockpilers and all this stuff. So obviously there's a few videos that go around social media every now and then of, you know, people having fights in Asda or cramming through the doors of Sainsbury's in the morning. But, you know, when I go to my local Tesco, you know, I look around and, okay, it's a bit busier, but there aren't people, you know, stockpiling for the rest of the year. There aren't people with 100 toilet rolls in their basket. What you do see is empty shelves, you know, sitting there sometimes for days at a time that are meant to be full of things that people need. I think it's time we realise, you know, that we'll not survive this crisis on the basis of personal behaviour alone. Resilience is not just a question of resolve. There are questions of organisation here and they deserve to be scrutinised. And of course there's always going to be a place for personal responsibility, But at the end of the day, when access to the things that we all need is organised on the basis of this absolutely ruthless efficiency, you know, in the service of profit rather than people, it seems appropriate to me that we actually look upwards at the decisions that led us here. So if you want to know why shelves are empty, that's what you're going to have to do. And by the way, if you want to know why nurses still haven't got personal protective equipment, the same questions are going to have to be asked.
0: All right, my thanks to Craig for that. And he is right, of course, those are exactly the kind of questions we need to be asking. Go read that piece. If you head over to your normal Navarro podcast feed, or the the Navarro website you'll find the latest episode of ACFM where the crew talk about utopia it's a really lovely almost dreamlike episode and much needed right now I have lots of thoughts on it and maybe I will share those somewhere and perhaps while you're listening you can go over to the burner iTunes feed the feed the new burner iTunes feed and please 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 leave us a review it really genuinely does help Headlines today all running with the seriousness of the crisis underlined for many by that new field hospital setting up in London. But other really interesting stories, it looks like Parliament will rise for Easter early and not return for four weeks. That's probably right, though there will be serious questions about how best to hold Johnson to account without Parliament. And there's a story floating around that Johnson might invite the next Labour leader into a national government delight for that perpetual liberal emergency fantasy of taking the politics out of politics but not, or at least not yet, a good idea at all. Ahead of us today, Prime Minister's question time, the last one before Parliament closes, severe and serious questions to be answered there and Jeremy Corbyn's final question time before he steps down as Labour leader. Universal Credit is also in meltdown with thousands and thousands of people signing on and trying to access help, expect questions on that. Unison, Northwest Trade Union, uh, are putting out a survey for care workers. If you're a care worker, head over and fill that out now. Uh, If not, why not share it? The link is in the description for this show. More to come as we go on on mutual aid groups, uh, as well as what we should be doing at home during the lockdown as ever. Please do get in touch with questions, ideas, news, initiatives, anything you'd like like answered at james at navarramedia.com. Stay home, wash your hands, don't be a prick. Get in touch with your local mutual aid group. That's it. This is The Burner. I am James Butler, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.